This episode is sponsored by This Naked Mind Companion app. Wait, This Naked Mind has an app? Yes, we do, and I am so excited to tell you about it. This Naked Mind Companion app is our brand new app where we've included all-in-one access to over 700 videos with answers to all your burning questions, our signature 30-day alcohol experiment, our incredible global community, and so much more, all in one convenient place. It's private, off social media, and free. This Naked Mind Companion app is available in the App Store, on Google Play, and online at thisnakedmindapp.com. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to This Naked Mind Podcast. And today, I have something really cool for you. I am actually going to share with you an interview from a podcast that I was on with two incredible individuals, two men named Champagne Problems. And it's interesting. I talk about specifically my own alcohol experiment where I got drunk in front of a camera and a lot of different things that I think I haven't, I haven't gone into that much detail about. So this was a really fun, really enlightening conversation. And of course they have um, their own naked life story. So I hope you enjoy. This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Welcome to Champagne Problems, new and old listeners. We've got a very exciting guest on the show today by the name of Annie Grace. If you're even remotely versed in the gray area mindful drinking space, then you've surely run across Annie Grace. Annie's the author of This Naked Mind and The Alcohol Experiment and hosts her own podcast, This Naked Mind Podcast. Annie has helped hundreds of thousands of people change their relationships to alcohol and continues to influence a cultural shift in how we perceive alcohol and its place in our societies. We're certainly speaking each other's languages, so let's go to Annie. Annie Grace, welcome to Champagne Problems. Oh, thanks so much. So happy to be here. Not sure how much you've dug into what what we're about, but our missions are are quite aligned. Um, we're we're both kind of looking at alcohol through a different lens than it has traditionally been looked at, and your work has certainly blazed a path for us. So uh, sure. thank you for all you've done and continue to do. Oh, that's amazing. Love that. So these are rapid fire questions to get to know you real quick. Awesome. <laughs> you ready? Ready. All right. What was your first live music concert? Um, it was Third World, which is a reggae band. Yes, I know Third World. Nice. Fantastic. What food is your guilty pleasure? Oh, cookie dough. Cookie yeah. dough, raw cookie dough. What's the last book you read? Um, gosh, I'm reading so many books at once. Um, yeah, the last yeah. book, Atlas Shrugged. Atlas Shrugged. Nice. Tell us a little bit about it. What is that about? Uh, it's, it's a really incredible book about the idea that if, um, that if the if too much laws rules regulations trying to make things like um government created happen then commerce will die and so oh. it's like a, a basically pro uh it, producers talking about this idea that like actually um people who create value in the world need to like that is what creates the jobs and the society and the commerce and, you know, the, um, the like forward momentum for everybody. And when that is like hamstrung by sort of government and legislation, uh, then the incentive for the people, like, I, I don't know, think of our entrepreneurs, like Steve jobs, 
like yeah. goes away and they stop doing what they're doing and we all suffer. Innovation dies. Yeah. Fascinating. All right. What makes you angrier than anything else? <laughs> so what pisses you off? I was trying to think of like a, a, a like global issue or like something. But no, like no. Day to day. Day to day. I can always see like two sides to everything. So that's really hard for me. But day to day, what that's makes good. me angrier um, than anything else is like, it's funny, like uh, my brother was here last night and we did not fight. We got along great. But like, there's nobody <laughs> in the world who can push my buttons like my brother. Like, it's just <laughs> I love it's like it. I'm small. <laughs> Completely understand. All right. So if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Here. I love uh, of course. No, I knew that was your I answer. Got, I got to make a comment real quick because people call me weird. Like, it, it, you have a whiteboard. Are you in your house right now? Or is this your uh, office? So this is, a, this is like an office. Out Home office? Over a garage. Yeah. So, yeah. Nice. I was getting right. Because I love, it, like, I'm a counselor and I love teaching stuff and all my crazy ideas. I try to articulate them on a whiteboard. So, oh, yes. I, saw, I yes. saw your whiteboard and I was like, yeah, this is my people right here. <laughs> my other thing that I love to do, you might like this, is um, markers and a document camera and just Ooh. like a sketch pad. So, like, when I'm when I'm, like, teaching an idea, I'll just, like, get out, get out a sketch pad and kind of like go through like, um, you know, different. I'll, I love it. And you just, you just like all, off the rip, like you just, I mean, that's a, is, is that how you kind of refine your ideas is by. Yeah. Or if I'm, if I'm teaching something like, so this is like something that I teach called the three layers of emotion. And yeah. so I obviously know it in my head. Um, yeah. and I, yeah, I think it just helps people to like be able to see it drawn sure. out. Explaining yeah. It. And then you photograph it and have it a digitally. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. And then that's I, mean, I, I, I have to, that's definitely helped me over the years kind of um, solidify some of my ideas and crazy theories. I love that. You've created a new, a new way, right? Uh, I mean, you have gone in and done, or from what I've read and, and understand about you, you've, you've done all this, you've done research or you had a personal experience that led to research that led you to creating a new way. And now it is hugely accepted and hugely utilized and widely successful. Patrick. Yeah, yeah, just so you know, everybody that's listening out there, I was, you know, looking on Amazon and this naked mind, which is Annie's book is the number one best-selling book on Amazon that has to do with alcoholism, and it actually it beat out the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous right now, which is pretty freaking awesome. I mean, I love AA, but, like, you know, that you got to be pretty pretty pumped about that. Yeah, yeah, it's it, pretty amazing. And I yeah. think the really interesting part about that is, and you might not know, but I self-published it originally. Really? Like, no, so I, I didn't, didn't have... That. Oh, um, yeah, it was just me trying to figure it out because I, it was really a collection of like my own research and my own journals and my own thoughts. And, and I put that out online just as a PDF. And like, I was just in my job. I just kind of was like, Hey, here's my research. And like 20,000 people downloaded that PDF in two weeks. And so somebody actually wrote me and said, Hey, like you should make this a book. And I was like, I I don't know how to do that. I got this job. I got these kids. And he's like, well, you can self-publish on Amazon. So I actually had a friend of my son's, his mom um, was like a local author. And I started to ask her about it. And she's like, yeah, but you need an editor because otherwise it's going to fail miserably. So I just hired an editor, uh, hired her editor, actually, who's amazing. And um and she helped me edit through the like just you know musings the nuttiness 
and, and actually make it something coherent. And then I, I self-published it. And then just virally, sort of word of mouth, it sold so many copies that it got the attention of all the top publishers. And it actually went into like an auction. Yeah, so, yeah. Congratulations. Could, probably couldn't I mean, have gone better any other way. I mean, that's, <laughs> that sounds freaking awesome. Yeah, really, really interesting. I think it's just, you know, um, it, it's kind of actually interesting, like what that book, Atlas Shrugged, is kind of about this idea that authority and value is given by the humans giving it rather than institutions, right? And yeah. I think that like really fascinating when we get into this work, because I've heard it said that innovation doesn't come from with inside the existing structures, because yeah. it's hard. It's hard if you're seeing the world through a, like a lens that has all of the structure to see anything outside of what you've been indoctrinated into. And so yeah. then somebody comes along who's just kind of a no one with their own experience, but they like have something to say. And we live in this day and age where we're so much more decentralized. Like I didn't have to go, you could self-publish. And by the way, that was relatively recent. Like it's not like more than a decade that you could have self-published a book. Right. So yeah. <clears throat> before, you know, it wouldn't even have made it on the shelves and now it's sold a million copies. And I think it's just like, people are like, we get to choose. I, I don't know. I just, I love all of, all of the accessibility that that we've been given with kind of technology because we get to choose what's who we want to turn the microphone up on. And sometimes that's yeah. just like a weird girl who had the weird story. So, <laughs> so tell us the weird story. Yeah. Yeah. What inspired you to create the new way? Um, yeah. So it was like, you kind of alluded to my own journey. I grew up very alternative lifestyle. Actually. I, I was raised in a one room log cabin without running water or electricity on the backside of a mountain at 10,500 feet. We have to snowmobile to get there in the winter time and go to- Gotta love your parents. <laughs> yeah, it was very, very intentional, you know, uh, privileged poverty, I guess, you know, in the sure. sense that they chose it. And, but, but very much like basically growing up in a different century. So I had to go to an outhouse to go to the bathroom, had to go to a spring to get water, to carry it back to the house to drink. Um, and so my parents, because of their chosen lifestyle, my dad was basically spontaneously sober. He had drank a lot in college and, and then he was just like, oh, forget that, I'm done with that. I don't wanna give my life to that anymore. And he just stopped on a dime, like no, no help. Yeah nothing else. Right. And he would, he'd say that oh, I was, I was for sure an alcoholic. That's how he'd talk about himself. And, and he's like, but I just was done. And so I didn't have any alcohol in my house. Like it, it just wasn't a thing. My dad didn't drink. My mom didn't drink. They were just like hippies. Right. And so I, um, I, I didn't have any cautionary tale around it. In fact, I, I don't even think I knew it was addictive. And I think that's a, actually strangely true for a lot of people like we mm -hmm. have this idea that you know only certain people can get addicted to alcohol which by the way is scientifically totally false but um it and so I went away to college fell into a group of friends that also didn't drink much so just you know had a few drinks here and there but then I moved to New York City with my husband and I was um I I got promoted a bunch of times and I was actually asked by my boss like, why aren't you showing up at happy hour? And I was like, oh, I don't drink. And he's like, oh my gosh, it's not about that. This is like where your career is going to be made. This is, we're all oh. too busy during the day where when the higher ups, our company was headquartered in London, when they come in from London, like if you want any FaceTime with them, it's going to be at the bar. 
And so I literally created a method for myself. I drink a, a glass of wine and then a glass of water. And I chose red wine. I, re I was like, okay, lowest calorie, best for your heart. Like, you know, I mean, so nerdy. And, um, and I do that, the glass of wine, the glass of water, uh, so that I would never get too drunk. And then sometimes if I did feel like I drank too much too fast, as I was kind of like, I made it a goal to build a tolerance so I could keep up with all the guys. And um and if I got felt like I was getting too drunk too fast, I would go into the bathroom and throw up the last glass of wine so I could keep drinking and never be drunk or tipsy because that was my thing. I was like, I'm never going to like I'd seen people who were like, you know, embarrassing themselves at work. And I was like, well, that's not going to get me ahead. So it was so intentional and methodical. But of course, what starts out intentional and methodical with an addictive substance, a highly addictive substance, like doesn't stay that way. And so, um, you know, kind of fast forward through the gory details, but 10 years later, I was drinking more than two bottles of wine every night. I had moved from bottles to boxes to kind of disguise the fact I had uh, two little kids at home. I was bringing them the absolute worst of myself and uh, just felt like alcohol. There wasn't, I, I never didn't drink. There wasn't a day that like, I, I don't, I couldn't even think of a day. Like if, if my husband's like, we should take a day off, I would get, you know, annoyed and upset and like guilt trip him and, you know, just drink anyway. Um, and it was, it, it was alcohol had become, in my mind, like the, basically like the duct tape that was holding my entire life together. It was, um, yeah. it felt like the most important thing. And so I did what everybody does. I was like, okay, this is starting to create problems. I'm smart. I'm in control. I'm just going to cut back. And the truth was I could, but it came with this huge price tag of mental deprivation. Every time I would cut back, I would feel like, oh, this sucks. Like, what's the point? Like right. I'm miserable, you know? And, and so I could do it. I could take the 30 day break. I could do the things to let myself know I wasn't a quote alcoholic. I didn't have a problem, you know, but like, I would always um, justify my way back into it because I was so miserable without it. And one day I was coming home from, I was working and living in between London and the U S with my family. And sometimes they were with me in the UK. Sometimes they were here for the job I was in. And I was coming home from a week without them. And it had been like the booziest week. I mean, I had been up the night before my plane took off to come back to the States. I'd been up till three in the morning drinking in somebody's hotel room, watching some football game, um, soccer, football on, on the TV and like all these coworkers. And I, I just went back to my hotel room. I didn't even really fall asleep. I was just still drunk, packed my stuff, made it down into the hotel um restaurant by like as soon as they opened was waiting for them to open because I thought if I could just get some food in my system maybe I'd feel good enough to get on the plane and I asked the waitress I was like hey can I get a mimosa because you know hair of the dog I thought that's that's what I need I just need to get home I just need to feel better and she's like well you know I can't open the champagne this early because unless you're planning to drink the whole bottle like like I for sure would but I wasn't going to admit that to her so, <laughs> right. so then I was like all right that's okay and she's like well I could bring you a screwdriver oh and I was like, oh okay well let's do that and in my mind I was like man that's one of those little lines that I thought okay if I just don't cross that little line yeah. if I don't have hard alcohol first thing in the morning then then I'm still okay but right? you could just do it once yeah you know? right Right. Just, yeah. just the one, but I'm, I just need it this one time. Just like I'm just going to get home. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I had a few 
And I remember getting to the airport and just sitting in the train tunnel and just like starting to sob, like somebody probably thought somebody had died in my life. And I felt so stuck and so miserable and confused. And I remember just thinking like what I, the, the thoughts that I'd always had were just going through my mind. What's wrong with me? What's my problem? Am I an alcoholic? And these terrifying thoughts. And in this one kind of moment of um, clarity, I had this other thought, which was why, you know, why, why did I used to be able to take it or leave it? Why was I able to drink? And now it alcohol like feels like it controls me. Why did it used to be fun without it? And now nothing is fun. And, and so I actually did something that is really radical and very anti-traditional recovery, but lucky for me, I didn't know anything about traditional recovery at the time. So I wasn't indoctrinated <laughs> and I, uh, um, I decided I was going to stop trying to stop drinking because the, the crazy train that I was on involved promises to myself, breaking yeah. those promises, yeah. um, failures, yeah. failures shame. So, shame. so much self-hatred, shame, yeah. all that stuff. And, and so I said, okay, I'm going to take a year and I'm just going to drink as much as I want, but I'm going to promise myself two things. I'm going to find out why. And I'm going to just start to like, let myself off the hook and like, try to try to find some sense. Cause I knew that like what this, the cycle I was on was not only loud in my head to where I couldn't even absorb other information or ideas. Um, but it was also so full of self-hatred and self-loathing that I, I was at a place where I was like, I had forgotten how to trust myself. And, and interestingly, like one of the things that I think was a real benefit from my very bizarre upbringing is, you know, my parents taught myself to trust me first. And I think that was such a gift. And like that had been eroded, even though it was true for me for, you know, the majority of my life. And I was like, all right, like I need to get back to that. Like I, I am not broken. And so I started with that premise. Like I'm not, not broken. There's nothing wrong with me. I just need to understand why. And so I made a list of every single reason that I drank and I would methodically in my free time go through that list and research and and be like is this true is this true is this true what's what's the truth and you know slowly this kind of unraveling of this super knotted necklace um i realized that everything that i thought alcohol did for me it didn't actually do uh and so about a year later it was it was right around a year i walked out of my office and i told my husband like if you want to get drunk with me again tonight's the night cuz i'm i'm not drinking after this and he was like, uh-huh, but <laughs> we, right. we shared a bottle of wine okay. and, um, and I didn't drink for, uh, a while. And what, what was really interesting in that moment is I didn't want to drink anymore. Like that was the first time that I just didn't want it. Like I, I had changed my desire for alcohol by changing what I knew about alcohol. And, um, and I like to think about it now is like, we always are, when we try to change behavior as humans, we just go directly for the jugular. Like we just go right for the behavior. We're just like, let's white knuckle this. We're just never going to drink again. We're just going to do it. And then we wonder why we're not successful. And what I had done, and I can see this now in hindsight is I had like actually changed what I thought, which changed how I felt, which changed, you know, when you change your desire, like it's easy to not do something you don't really want to do. Um, and I didn't want to drink anymore. And so, uh, but the story didn't quite end there. There was about uh, four months after that happened, 
I was at St. Patrick's Day with some friends and they were all like sitting around drinking and I was feeling left out and I hadn't been feeling left out. I'd been feeling really good and proud of myself, but I just had this moment of like, did I overreact? Like, is everything I like, did I, am I, oh, am yeah. I too big of a deal of this? Right. Mm -hmm. And so, but instead of deciding to like, just drink, which is, I think a very dangerous decision in that moment, um, because alcohol is so tricky. I was like, all right, I'm going to go home and tomorrow night, I'm going to buy myself two bottles of wine and I'm going to set up my video camera and buy myself in my room. I'm going to get drunk and I'm going to see how it oh, really wow. feels. And, um, and so I did, and I have four and a half hours of watching myself get drunk by myself in front of a camera. And this was, um, this was like, you know, no stimulation. I needed to just have the pure experience. It was something I'd read about, um, and I was like, all right, I'm going to try that. And like, I couldn't even watch the videos for years. Now I've, I've distilled them down into like a little 16 minute video that um, is in like my free challenge, but I, I couldn't even watch them, but I could tell you one thing, like beyond a shadow of a doubt, like there, I woke up the next morning and I was like, there is nothing there for me. Like it was, it was so pure and true that alcohol without any external stimulation without any relief of the withdrawal or craving because i hadn't i hadn't drank for four months does nothing for you like nothing like it was not fun like oh. everything i thought was fun and i was like i did not make too big of a deal out of it and it's funny now because i was a few weeks ago i was with a bunch of people who I'd known for a few years, but they'd, you know, I'm the girl who wrote the book about alcohol. So everybody's always super like, oh, I need to like not drink around her. Hey, will you videotape uh, me for an hour? <laughs> I was like, whatever, like, <laughs> let's just hang out. And so I was hanging out and everybody was drinking and it was kind of like a house party. And, and, you know, they're, they're, get, they're getting curious and they're asking me like, well, do you feel like bad that you can't drink anymore? And I was like, no, like, I, I mean, I feel like, a little bit sorry for the people who do drink. I didn't say yeah. that out loud, but I was like, no, like, that's not my experience of this at all. Like my experience of this is like, I don't have to do that anymore. Like, I'm so glad to be on this side of things and I'm having so much more fun. And I'm, I'm so thrilled not to have to put that in my body. I know how you are going to, I know how you feel right now. I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> it's well, not, it's like not, it's not that you can't drink like that's the thing it's i don't you don't think of it as i can't no not at all so anyway that's that's the long-winded version wow i love it i love it do you incorporate the video method into your method i i suggest that people do it if they want to i mean i'm, oh, I'm i wish i had one lightly like i'm like look like and if you're gonna do it because people will do this and it's so, it's so just typical of how alcohol screws up our brain, but people will be like, well, you know, I was on day two and I was out at the bar and I tried your experiment. That's what I call it. The alcohol experiment. Yeah. I tried your experiment and it was fun. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, you missed the memo. Yeah, so it's like, fun. No external <laughs> stimulation. You have to have not been drinking for at least two weeks, hopefully more like 30 days, because you have to get the physical cravings out of your body because alcohol is, you know, scratching an itch feels nice unless you're not itchy, right? Like, right, right. Then you're just <laughs> scratching I, yourself. I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking out loud here, like in, in terms of, of that alcohol experiment and your kind of method, or do you have like, and I'm, 
I should probably know this, but do you have like a forum to where people that are that are following your method can kind of report back to where you can kind of track some of the outcomes and stuff? I mean, obviously, probably not doing it like rigorously, but is there a place where people no, can I, say, hey, this is what's going on? Really? Because, um, because here's the thing, like I've been like people start to get in touch with me, right, which is super cool and super yeah. Exciting like rehab centers, yeah, um, sure. a neurology institute. And they're like, hey, like we want to study your method and what you're doing because like this naked mind, like it's now sold a million copies. So people are, it's like, it's like, it's like pretty mainstream so, for people, yeah. which is super cool and never where I thought it would be. Um, and so I actually did, I hired, so two things. Number one, we have a free app. It's just called This Naked Mind and it has a whole community on there and the 30 day challenge is on there. Um, so that's where like people are together. And uh we we've unfortunately switched platforms for that app three different times. So cumulatively, we've had like 700 and some thousand people join it. But uh, right now there's like 75,000, which is still a ton of people, but it's yeah, just that's we, a good data set. switching platforms. And then of course, um, so, but it's a very, it's a very cool community. So I did, I hired a PhD and she surveyed and she just basically asked two questions of the people in that community, which is, since finding this naked mind, and we had over over three thousand or twenty, anyway, between two and three thousand responses, which she told me was statistically significant. Yada yada yada. I care a lot about the science, but I won't bore you with the details. But the question was, since coming into contact with this naked mind, has your drinking stopped, reduced, stayed the same, or increased? And there was a bunch of other questions, but that was that was the one I cared about the most. Fifty-four um, percent of people had stopped. And 26% of people had reduced. So 90% of people had either stopped or reduced their drinking. And um, 1% increased. And, of course, that's the <laughs> that's, that's the girl that goes to the bar and videotapes herself. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, 9% stayed the same. Wow. Some pretty good numbers. Yeah, that's, that's highly successful. So tell us about the model. Yeah, yeah. I know it's probably hard to do since it's a – entire book you can, you can pull that whiteboard up if you need to <laughs> yeah yeah no problem yeah so <laughs> um well i've spent a lot of time because when i when i about two or three months after the book published there was a a man um and he was a psychologist in the uk with the national health services and he wanted to use he'd read my work and he'd recommended it to his patients and he was seeing success where he hadn't been before and i think it's really tough for for therapists and psychologists to know that alcohol is the elephant in the room for some of their life problems, but have no clue how to address it. Right. Sure. And so, um, and so he asked me if he could get certified in my method. And I was like, what? Like, uh, this was just my story. Like, I, I don't know who you think I am, <laughs> but anyway, I was like, well, I don't have the certification, but like, would you help me build one? And he said, yes. And so that started like a four-year journey of me really kind of trying to dig in, deconstruct, reverse engineer, like why yeah, yeah, yeah. does this work? Wow. Um, and so in a nutshell, I think that there's, you know, a few scientific principles that are at work. Number one is that self-compassion is absolutely the key to lasting change. Like self-compassion um, scientifically, according to numerous studies above all else, and I actually do an exercise with people where we get a bunch of people on sort of a, a Zoom call or a, a free, like I do a free three-day event every month. And it's basically people come on and I'm like, okay, like 
put a moment of regret in the chat. People tell us all these sorts of things. And then I said, what are you telling yourself about this? They tell me it's always beating themselves up. That's always super negative. And I pick one moment and I pick one that's really intense and really hard and, you know, quote, unforgivable. And I say, okay, like this thing that happened to Karen, like where she um, forgot to pick up her kid because she was drunk and blah, blah, blah. What would you tell her? And like the chat just fills up with like so much love and so much. It's okay. You're not alone. And it's like, I mean, it gets me every time I get really emotional because it's like so amazing. It's like, why can't we do that for ourselves? And yeah. I said, if Karen could believe that every day for the next 30 days, would she drink more or less? And people are like, less. And I was like, so why? Why are you so attached to this blame and shame? And we have so many fears around it. We think, oh gosh, if I if I let myself off the hook, I, I don't trust myself. So if I let myself off the hook, like I'll be 400 pounds, you know, you know, two bottles in on the couch with Cheeto dust on me. Like I'm, I'm never gonna, like, I just, but, but I'm like, that actually won't happen. Like yeah. statistically, scientifically, if you let yourself off the hook, if you learn the skill to approach yourself with grace and compassion first, um, you will find that you are trustworthy with your own life. Like your instinct for your well-being is the highest and greatest instinct and it will kick in and it will come through, but you have to let yourself off the hook. And often the sabotage comes from the pain of the blame and shame. Yeah. And so then people are like, well, how do I do that? I don't even know where to start. And I'm like, well, join a community, let other people do it for you until you know how and, and practice on other people, because it's so much easier for us to see other people's experience and have compassion for them before we can have it for ourselves. So self-compassion. But then the other one is, and, and this is again, like so many psychologists have reached out to me now and said like, Hey, like this is the theory that underpins why your work works. So I'm like, Oh, yeah, this I is was just, yeah. I was just thinking of internal family systems when you were talking about. Right. That. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so now I have this whole list, like I've, I've had, I've had like professors write me white papers, uh, like six pages long of like, here's all the stuff. I'm like, this is great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Man. <laughs> and so, I didn't use that. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other one was, um, the other main thing, the other key pillar, I guess, is, is that positive emotion is the thing that affects change over the long term over negative emotion. And if you look at our traditional recovery, it's so full of negative emotion. In fact, we say in negative emotion um, for a very, very long time. And so, but the, the question is, well, well, how, how could you possibly have positive emotion around something like stopping drinking, which feels like so much deprivation? And the answer is you need to learn something first. And then when you learn new things and internalize new beliefs, which is, you know, what really the narrative of the book is, is that you actually will feel different things. And then when you feel different things, you will behave differently. And when you combine that with self-compassion, like it's really magical. I mean, people say that it's like a magic trick. And in the book, and this is another radical thing, I actually recommend on page one that people don't try to stop drinking until they're done reading the book. And same thing, I have a, I have a program, um, like the word path is behind me because I call it the path, but the P in the path stands for pause. And it, I'm like, look, just stop trying to stop. And I don't force it. I'm really like gentle with people on whatever they want to do, but people who have been really resistant to it for a long time, then have finally been like, look, I'm going to just do exactly what you say because I'm still stuck. And they actually stop and they learn self-compassion while they're still drinking, which is by the yeah. way, harder. Mm -hmm. uh, then they really learn it. And they, they 
they quiet down the noise in their minds so that they can actually learn the new information. And when they learn the new information, um, then they feel differently. And so it's it's the combination of those two things, I'd say, at its core. Why do you think we as a people, our default mode is a lack of self-compassion and negative emotion? Well, I mean, because that is like everybody in the world could say, oh, yeah, 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 you know, I do the same thing in my own head and all that. Like, why, why is that about us? I think really tragically, um, we're not born that way. No, I know. Like my son, he's 14 and, um, you know, he, he just recently got a phone and his, his picture on his phone is of himself and the little writing on his phone says Turner is awesome. And he was, he's just been in a house where, I'm like, thinking you are awesome is job one. Because if you think you are awesome, then you'll think everybody else is awesome. If you judge yourself, you're going to judge everybody else. But, and like my daughter, she's five. And like, I remember when she was three, she'd look in the mirror and she'd be like, there you are. (laughs) So excited. (laughs) And that's how children are. Like we, we are born with this deep river of love for ourselves and passion and people are like you have to learn how to love yourself i'm like no 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 that's total bullshit like you have to actually um deconstruct all of the blocks that you've created that have been put up between you and you and those blocks have come from all sorts of different places like don't brag don't think too highly of yourself or immediately thrown into competition with everybody else like you know which is like why like you know and and not the competition i don't know i don't know i'm not gonna like make some declaration about stuff like that but i do know that all of these things cumulatively just create this thing where we start to believe that selfish is a bad word but the thing is is selfish is it's not it's not a bad word it's the truth (laughs) we are selfish right (laughs) we are a self (laughs) and like when we are not a self then we can't show up for anybody else you know, and it's starting to get, I think, much more attention and traction of like this idea of, you know, selflessly selfish. It's what the Dalai Lama says. He's like, take care of yourself first so you can show up for other people. And this idea of like, you can't pour from an empty cup. And, um, you know, I love how Glennon Doyle talks about motherhood of like, you want to be a model, not a martyr. You want to create a life that you love because then your children will not go on to perpetuate the cycle of just sacrificing everything for their children. And so I think like we're getting, we're waking up to this, this, this concept or idea that we've created, but, but it's unfortunately, I think one of those things that is just indoctrinated. I don't think we're born that way. Yeah. In ter- in terms of your model and like continuing to move towards that that state of being self compassionate and 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 self confidence and not needing any type of self medicator, do you other than your model? I mean, where does it kind of stop and like lead into other things? Like, I mean, are you are you a um? I mean, do you do you kind of preach like therapy or community groups or is this or is your model kind of this like all-encompassing like you can get everything you need here so um so obviously the books that I've written so far are based on alcohol but what's happened that's been really interesting is you know a book doesn't work for everybody and so I've had people since really day one say hey can I can I like work with you? Can I get coached? Can you help me with this? And so I actually pretty shortly, maybe a year or two after I wrote the book, started to create 
like coaching programs where um, I would take people through the work, you know? And then of course we created the certification and now I've trained like 270 coaches. And, um, and so I think that the thing that happens is people find freedom from alcohol with this. And then they say, well, wait, like how else can I apply this? Where else might this be helpful? Where else might this be useful? And so I have done multiple years of teaching and video-based teaching um, and live teaching on these sorts of ideas way past alcohol, but it's all, it's all really sort of like just internal to the people who I was actually teaching. Right. So, um, so I'm working on a book right now, uh, called naked AF (laughs) alcohol free, Uh, (laughs) but, but basically (laughs) the, it's all about this, like, okay, so how do you then show up and live without, without self-medication? Um, and, and I think the distinction I would make between like the, the habit change coaching that I do that is alcohol specific and beyond alcohol. And I would say your negative thinking is absolutely a habit. And so I would include that in there, um, is that, and therapy is that therapy is really past focused. You're, you're going past and, and you're reliving, you know, perhaps trauma or you're working through trauma. And, and I think, and therapy is also often for people who are, um, you know, having like, there, there's just a level of, of need that presents itself that is way beyond the scope of coaching. Whereas coaching, at least how I teach it is very much present focused. And that's where I found freedom from alcohol is how am I thinking? And what am I believing about alcohol right now in this moment that's causing me to have a drink, right? It's not, you know, what, what, that's how I changed is it, it wasn't okay. What in my past created in me the pain that caused me to drink. And so it was like, what am I thinking and believing right now that leads me to believe that who cares what, not who cares, but like the the pain's the pain. I could reach for self-medication, any self-medication. I could, I could be a workaholic. I could be an exerciseaholic, right? Like, why is it alcohol? Like, what is the thoughts about alcohol that I'm having? And so I actually, I actually break it down into three different layers of beliefs and the beliefs are about the substance itself and those beliefs you know they're they're really pretty easy to overcome because they're all scientific like when you look at alcohol it just doesn't do what you thought it would do right like and so that's in the book but then there's a second layer of beliefs which is about society and am i going to be left out am i going to be included how am i going to feel right and that is harder to undo sometimes takes a little bit more coaching it's more person to person specific but then the third layer of beliefs is these beliefs about yourself And, you know, that I'm not worthy, that I'm not okay, that I can't make it through the day without a drink. I'm not strong enough. And if you don't, if you don't handle those beliefs about yourself, like you will go back to some form of self-medication. So my work extends to those beliefs about yourself, but their beliefs may be about something that happened to you at one point in time, but they're, what are you thinking about yourself right now? That's keeping you stuck. So we don't go back into or relive or talk about trauma, although like, obviously that's a key component that can keep people stuck. But the key, the thing that I believe that's keeping them stuck right now in the pattern of, you know, whether it's the pattern of, you know, allowing themselves to continue to be a victim years after the thing happened or whatever it is, is their thinking about what's happening in the moment, right? What, what is the voice in their head telling them about themselves right now? And, and the realization that actually I am a grown up. I can change that. I have the agency, even though I didn't think I did, to change what I'm telling myself and what I'm believing and what I'm thinking. And so that is the focus of the work 
that really focuses on that third layer of belief about self. And um, it's the same, it's the same ideas, it's the same concept, you know, radical self-compassion, awareness of what you're believing consciously and subconsciously, and then methodically changing them. I have a technique that I use to to just actually change and shift those beliefs. And um yeah, that's really powerful, but it's uh not therapy. Yeah. What is hmm. Did you have anything? Because I, I, I kind of want to learn. I mean, can you, can you, and, and we don't have to go crazy with it, but can you kind of outline that technique? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so it's called the ACT technique. And um, I didn't know that there was an ACT thing before that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Apologies to whoever. Um, Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's like my whole mo like i just didn't know anything i was just yeah, like, really. this, i figured you know me and my sketch pad and my crayola marker like, no, yeah. i thought of this yeah, yeah, i thought like, of this hold on that's my theory um so so there's an act therapy that's like yeah. i think it's awareness acceptance and commitment therapy acceptance yeah. and commitment therapy. this is not that unfortunately it shares the same name because i had no idea what i was doing um but act as i use it is awareness clarity and turnaround and awareness is just becoming really aware of that thought that's happening in your head. And then clarity is where I kind of think of it as the candle flame. So when we reveal the pain of what we're thinking to ourselves, it's like a candle flame. Our brain will very naturally subconsciously start to let go of that thought because we're like, Oh, that's painful. So there is where, okay, when I think this thing, so when I think, um, you know, I like, let's use just an alcohol example because it's the easiest. But when I think alcohol relaxes me, I'm stressed after a hard day. And I, I think that, and I'm not going to allow myself to drink. How do I feel? I feel, so the two questions in clarity is how does that thought make you feel? And how does that thought make you behave? And how do I feel? Well, I, I feel deprived. I feel like I'm missing out. I feel more stressed, right? How do I behave? I, I probably have a drink because I get myself into like such a sort of fit about it. Right. And so then the turnaround is the T and the turnaround is what is a thought that I could think in that moment, or what is something that I can, you know, get curious about that would give me a different feeling and a different behavior. And so that is, I apply this thing called ladder thinking, which you can't jump from the bottom to the top of a ladder. You have to actually take it like one step at a time. So the thought has to be something that is very believable and very true. And usually when people are trying to like change their thought, they go for the, the exact opposite. This is where all these techniques fall and people are like positive thinking is total BS because it doesn't work it is because you're trying to go from, you know, alcohol relaxes me to alcohol doesn't relax me, but guess what? Your brain has a ton of evidence for the fact that it does like, right. and so you just actually, Dr. Caroline Leaf, she's a neuroscientist out of South Africa. She actually says that when you try to force in a belief, you don't believe you create neurotoxicity. And so, mm -hmm. um, so with the latter technique, sometimes you even include the original belief in the new thought, right? So you might do something like, I believe alcohol relaxes me. But I also know that I'll be more stressed tomorrow if I have a drink. And the truth is that thought, well, it's, you know, not the opposite or anything. How does that make you feel? Well, I might feel a little deprived, but I also see that I don't want it. How does it make you behave differently? Or maybe the thought could be, and the turnaround is like you try it on. So you try on a bunch of different ones. It's it's heavily informed by Byron Katie's work. And um, you you try on a different bunch of different ideas. So maybe the the thought could be, 
you know, alcohol might relax me, but I'm also curious if I could relax without it. Like what, what might it look like to try and relax without it? Why don't I give myself an hour to see? And then if I'm still totally miserable, I'll come back to it. But, but maybe I can, or maybe the thought is maybe I can relax without alcohol. How does that make you feel? Maybe motivated to try something new. How does that make you behave? Right. And so it's just this idea of trying on different thoughts. Um, in the book, I apply a very similar process, but it's much deeper. I actually present the alternative evidence in the form of research. So you go through these kind of narrative uh, yeah. things where you actually change how you view something. But mm. so this this is a little side sidebar. <clears throat> um, Let's see. All right. So pure candidness here. Um, I'm working with a therapist on <laughs> how I change the way that I view um, indulgence as a reward for me. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, and I've noticed some of your work is around um, not looking at alcohol as a reward and kind of our reward systems and, and the way we want to change those. And, and it certainly is, is, the reason this is coming up is based on what you were just saying. It was kind of taking the latter thinking and the ACT and changing the way we think about certain things. But like many areas in my life, whether it's food, whether it's exercise, I, I, I do those things for the reward of indulgence. So it's like I work out so I can be a sack of shit for a week or I eat really well so I can eat Chinese three days in a row. You know, it's, and so my, my, my view of the value of the work I'm doing is off <laughs> and I need your program to change it. Does it so, work for all kinds of things? Well, let I me, guess is let what me I'm ask you a question. To. So in, in this, are you saying, because what, what you're describing is like temptation bundling, right? Like I'm going to do this in order to do something else. Or I'm going to do this with it. Um, but you're, you're saying that that's not, you don't feel like that's working for you. Like you don't want to be, you want to be just working out and not indulging later. Oh no, he loves it. <laughs> well, I, I mean, in a realistic world, I'm I'm going to indulge at some point. I guess the, there's a lot of factors and and complexity in this. And obviously, when I indulge, then it creates a sense of failure and a sense of, uh, you know, uh, falling off and and having trouble getting back on. And and all of this applied to me back when I drank as well. So it's it's very very similar. So this is my question for you before, like, I'd love to dig into this just quickly because the act technique can be really fast. But um, but my question for you first, just to kind of get to the root of the problem, because it doesn't, and, and this is my like hype, like total, you know, mind reading and I could be way off base that so you're going to have to tell me, but is it that the belief that indulgence gets you to motivated is the problem or is the problem the fact that you beat yourself up for the indulgence? Um, I would imagine it's the beating myself up because I think that motivation comes in all sorts of flavors and forms and knowing your own brain and how you are like, we human beings do things for reward. Right. Right. Like, so using that to your advantage and is a very good thing. So I think trying to fix that problem might be the wrong approach because this seems to be working for you. Um, so I guess, is that that you don't want to be, you like you say, I'll indulge somehow anyway. Like, I just wonder if the work is much more in 
making peace because here's the thing about beating yourself up is when you beat yourself up, guess what you do? You indulge more because then you're not just indulging for the indulgence of the reward, but you're also just trying to prevent the negative emotion and yeah. all of these Medicating. things that you do, yeah. eating, drinking, scrolling, they help us escape the negative emotion. So if I were coaching you, I would probably coach you on the, the guilt that you're having and you're not allowing yourself to just do what you found works for you. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yep. So I just lean no. into like who you are and just say, Hey dude, I found something that works for me. And actually that's awesome. Like that's great because if you do that and then when you are feeling, so then in those moments that you're feeling like, Oh man, I just overindulged. What are you thinking? Right. I mean, it's everything we talked about in the beginning of the conversation where I asked, why do we default to no self-compassion and negative feelings? Like that's, that's where I go. I so go into what specifically, shame, like failure. what's the sentence that goes in through your head? Um, well, it's not always self-talk. A lot of times it's just how I feel, you know, after indulging, I don't, the next day I, I'm not real energetic to jump up and go run my three mile loop. I mean, that could be biological considering well, is, what you that's, indulge that's in. That's part too, of it, you know? Okay, so, you, so you, you indulge and you don't have energy. So you wake up and you don't have energy. And you, so you physically don't have energy. What do you think? Yeah, then I go into, God, I feel like shit. And then I'm probably, I am a piece of shit. So um, one of the, I'll just, I'll just give you an example of, of one of the ways that I unraveled something like this for myself. Um, and you know, as opposed to like trying to go into the whole coaching thing right now, but so I remember a moment where I went and, um, I had like this, this, I was like trying not to eat sugar and it was this Taekwondo expo. We did two days of, of working out like morning till night. And then we had this big party at the end and then they had this huge sheet cake with like just, you know, freaking like Walmart. <laughs> right. And so I'm like, so I had this piece of cake and I was doing the act technique on myself and I was, I was walking out of the place and I was like, Oh, I shouldn't have eaten that piece of cake. What's wrong with me? Like, this is so rid ridiculous. Like, why do I do that? Why do I, why do I do that? And I was mad at myself and beating myself up very similar and, um, and then I went into like, well, how does that make me feel? Well, it makes me feel like a piece of shit. Like you said, like, it makes me feel like an idiot and it makes me feel like I just worked out for two days. What's wrong with me? Why do I, why do I do this stuff? And it, it makes me mad at myself and it makes me disappointed in myself. And, and then what do I do? Um, I literally, I'm like, well, I got home and I'm like, well, screw it. I already, I already screwed that up. So let me like go steal my kid's Halloween candy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Shame cycle. Totally. Yeah. And so sheet then, cake, the sheet cake delivery. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. So then I'm like, okay, well, what is a thought that I could think that would make me feel and behave better in that moment? Because it's in the moments, right? It's in those tiny little moments of the day that these things are. And we try to, I think one of the things we try to do is like, oh, it's this big thing. Like I have this huge connection between indulgence and blah, blah, blah. And I like make it a huge thing. And there's multiple layers. And it's like, okay, fine. Like it could be that, but it also could just be the little thought that you're having when you wake up and don't physically have energy. And, and what if you changed that thought from, yeah, oh, what's wrong with me? I'm an idiot. All the, all the beating yourself up cycle to simply like, oh yeah, I overdid it and it wasn't worth it. 
because in that moment, if I think, okay, I, I ate the piece of cake, not I shouldn't have eaten the piece of cake. I just own it. I ate the piece of cake and it wasn't worth it. Then how do I feel? I feel like, okay, well, I learned something. How am I going to behave? The next time that happens, I'm going to remember it wasn't worth it. I'm not going to remember and react because when we overindulge, we are reacting to this like, okay, better do it before my, my brain wakes up. Like right. <laughs> I better hurry up and have this before yeah, like I, I wake in. up to what yeah. I'm doing. Otherwise I won't let myself. But if I'm just like, yeah, it wasn't worth it. Then in my experience, the next time something like that happened, I was like, yeah, I'm just going to have a few bites. Cause I remember overdoing it wasn't worth it. So it's it a lot of it falls into some mindfulness work, right? I mean, a lot of awareness it sounds like. The main thing is just finding a thought that in that moment, makes you feel better and will make you do a different thing. And it doesn't have to be like, oh, and it has to, it cannot be beating yourself up. Shaming. Yeah. Right. So I think you should actually switch to radical celebration of the fact that you have this massive connection between reward and an activity or, or doing like you have a way to motivate yourself. Cause guess what? Most humans don't. Mm. And most humans don't have the positive part of that. Like they're just indulging and they're, or they're just self-medicating. And so the fact that you've figured this thing out about yourself and your brain, where you have tools to get yourself to do shit, that's amazing. And you should celebrate that and double down on that. And that's incredible. And then when you overdo it, just make a note. It wasn't worth it. No shame, no blame, just wasn't worth it. And then you will stop overdoing it. And you will yeah. get all the best benefits from it. So you just got to find some healthy indulgences for you, yeah. Robbie. Yeah, lay off the uh, sesame chicken. Yeah. Um, Even if they're not healthy, like that's okay. Like it's what yeah, works yeah, for you, right? Yeah, just, yeah, yeah. But anyway. Well, kidding. thank you for, for engaging in that with yeah. me. I appreciate the the little caseload I threw on you there. No, I love it. I, you'll have to let me know if it was helpful in your real life as you go back into it or not. I will. I will. Like in terms of like the addiction spectrum... And, 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 you know, if you're, if you're looking at this from like a, you know, clinical lens and like a substance use disorder type view, um, and I, I don't like to look at stuff like that, but like in terms of your target market or target audience, like you feel like your method works for the best. Awesome question. So let me, let me approach this in a few different ways briefly. Okay. Number one is like, the elephant in the room is that there are very serious issues if somebody stops drinking cold turkey who needs to be tapered off and and go through a withdrawal process that's medically supervised or assisted. And so like that above all things preventing harm and preventing, you know, somebody from from engaging in something that could be harmful to them is the most important thing. And so there's there's probably more than um is reasonable moments where I am mentioning this. And even when I train coaches, like if somebody hasn't been able to not have a drink in a few years, like you probably want to tell them that you'll work with them in conjunction with them working with a medical professional, because that's just really, really important. Uh, but that being said, if we think about it, that physical aspect, 72 hours, alcohol is totally out of your system, two weeks, your brain and body rebalances, but that's not the hard part for people. The hard part is 
30 days, six months, one yeah. year, two years, because yeah. you're still trying to change your behavior without changing your thinking and without changing your beliefs. And so from that perspective, I don't know anything else that goes into changing your thinking and your beliefs. And so I would say that it's wildly relevant for all people. A lot of people will do this naked mind work while they're in a rehab center because yeah. they need to the supervision, they want the medical detox, but without the thinking work, you're, I mean, the chances of you going back to it are are astronomically high. Now, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a clinician, I'm not a doctor, so I have to be so incredibly careful about like making sure to refer people who might need additional help. But I can't, there's nowhere I could refer them that I would say, hey, that's going to take care of that most important part. You know, yeah. I did a I did a presentation to the Mission Neurology Institute um, because they were really curious about my work, and the presentation was like. Look, one of the big fallacies that we are dealing with here is we treat addiction as if it's physical. A 28-day treatment program is treating mostly physical symptoms, right? Like nope. that's their primary thing. Like if I can just get you away from it physically for these amount of days, you're going to be okay. Well, they have a 4% success rate. And so the reality is like if we don't start to treat the mental aspect like we're, we're not going to recognize success. And so, you know, I've had, so I have a podcast who, um, this naked mind podcast, and like, it's basically just people telling me their story. And, you know, I've had so many stories of people who have tried various things. The most intense one was there's a woman and she called herself a frequent flyer and she'd been into treatment 14 times before she found this naked mind. And now she's sober two years. And I think it's, it's like, it's so like, if there was a, if, I don't feel like it's responsible of me to be like, hey, yeah, I can't help you because you're drinking too much. Go to therapy. I think I have to be like, look, you have to work on the mental stuff. So to take my book to therapy <laughs> or you know what I mean? Like yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. do that too, because if you if you just address the physical aspects, um, yeah, I don't think it's enough. Oh, so does it does the model is it is it based on the goal being abstinence? Or can people that want to moderate their drinking still, you know, be still, you know, get some value out of your, out of the model? So really interestingly, it's like, I believe so much more in how you feel than what you do. And I think because how you feel drives what you do. So I'm very strict about like what you do, because what, what we've done, especially when it comes to alcohol is we've taken something like drinking and we've distilled down our entire sense of worthiness as a human being to our behavior. Yeah. And then, mm -hmm. by the way, we beat our, and by the way, that's what you're doing with your indulging thing too. Like you're, you're distilling down your worthiness as a human being to your behavior. And if you can like let go of the behavior for a minute, like forget the rules, like who cares, right? How do you feel about the behavior? And if you feel differently about it, your actions, most people do stop entirely, but I never, and like, I don't even call myself sober because I say I drink as much as I want whenever I want. I just haven't wanted to drink <laughs> in eight years, oh, right? Man. Because like when I'm on a television show or something, that's an accessible message. And my goal is to lower the barrier to entry because yep. there, there doesn't have to be any rules. I've seen people do all sorts of things, but if you change how you feel about it, chances of you not wanting to drink anymore considering the cost and considering, you know, the fact that it is addictive and it will change your prefrontal cortex to make you crave it and you will feel out of control. Like, yeah, most people stop, you know, 54% of people stop, but, yeah. but like 26 cut back and that's a win too. And so there's no, there's no, like, I I'm so adamant about just there not being rules and all being, yeah. because like, if you think about a traditional model, 
you stop drinking, you're a success. It doesn't matter that you don't feel, you still feel like, like shit. Depressed, right, yeah. you're miserable, you're deprived. Yeah. I love that. Like, yeah. Yes. I mean, that's great. And I, and I bet, you know, some people do go into it with the idea that they're not going to stop drinking completely. And then once they get into the work, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. I think I probably why would, should. Why would I continue? Yeah. Right. Let your feelings guide you. I love it. I love it, and I love the 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 accessible entry. That's that's a lot of what we're about. We're we're trying to really change the way we we go into the conversation. We're coming kind of from a wellness lens, um, thinking it's uh, less we less want offensive. Everybody. Yeah. Um, all right. So final two questions. Um, you want to ask the first one? What do you tell people are the biggest benefits of decreasing or eliminating alcohol from their lives? I think you get to go on to like really being in the journey of discovering yourself and who you really are and, and getting back in touch with that version of you that was like childlike and joyful and loved yourself because that doesn't happen when you're self-medicating and it really doesn't happen when you're beating yourself up for self-medicating. Yeah. Beautiful. Nice. Final question. Annie Grace, why do you care? Uh, so I was actually talking to my brother about this last night and I was like, there's, um, I mean, it's so many reasons, but for me, what's been really helpful, especially because, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of easier ways to make a living. <laughs> sure. You guys know this is true. Um, and, and you're putting yourself in, in the line of fire, especially with a lot of people who are quite resistant to change. And that's less true now, but it was very true eight years ago. And, um, and so I think I have to anchor myself in, in something that is very powerful and that brings me into my why. And I heard, and I don't even know if this is true, but it just, it just works for me. Um, and the, I heard that in the UK, there was a hotline where kids, if they, uh, if their parents were too drunk to read them a bedtime story, they could call the hotline and they could get read a story before bed. <laughs> oh my God. And, um, and like, when I think about that and like, I'm like, okay, I remember trying to avoid bedtime or get through it or falling asleep halfway through the story, you know, falling asleep, AKA right. you know, halfway through the story and having you know, my kid like, wake up, wake up, keep going, keep going. And, and I just like, I, I care because I want to, I want to give kids their parents back. Mm. Wow. Annie Grace, we love you. Thank you so much. It was an honor talking to you. Yeah, oh, thank you so great, much guys. for everything you're doing and all the hard work you've put into this and for, you know, kind of taking the risk to do something different and really be authentic. Shit, changing the world. Everything you're doing. Changing the world over there. Oh, thanks, and, you guys. And, and thank really you. Fun. Thanks for taking the time to be here with us, too. Yeah. Awesome. No, it was so much fun. I really appreciate it. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.
Wouldn't it be great if our children never had to go through the pain and challenges that we faced in our own relationships with alcohol? That's my greatest wish for my own kids, and it's why I created the most important course that I've ever offered, How to Talk to Your Kids About Alcohol. Now, even if you've struggled with alcohol and you're not sure what to talk to your kids about it, or if you want to create a relationship with your children that's based on mutual respect, mutual trust, and open communication, if you know that this conversation might be one of the most important you'll have with your kids and it just can't wait any longer, then this course is for you. It includes lifetime access to six video modules, a bonus recorded Q&A session where I answer questions from parents live, just like you, an interactive workbook, and our private and exclusive How to Talk to Your Kids About Alcohol online community, where you can connect with others who are also navigating this important conversation. Visit TalkToYourKidsAboutAlcohol.com to learn more and enroll today. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.